This week, uh, I want to get back into our uh, discussion around the grand design. If you remember, about a month ago or so, we launched a new series uh, trying to make, take some deep theological truths and explore the more practical elements of our life with them. Uh, looking at topics ranging from that we were created, we're going to be looking at uh, our sexual, the sexuality, looking at marriage. Uh, last time we were together uh, in this series, we looked at Psalm 139. Uh, and if you remember that series, we, or that sermon, uh, the thought that came out of that was that we've been created and crafted. Do you remember that? Psalm 139, that we've been created and crafted, which denotes this incredible sense of purpose and this incredible sense of knownness. Remember we talked about that, that we are known, that we are not alone, that we are known, and that there's beauty in our design. And there is a reminder of purpose infused into the very core of who we are. And so that we'll know we're not an accident. And I made that statement, and friends, I'll, I'll share that with you again this morning. I think as I hear that statement, that just resonates with my heart. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. You are here this morning in Panton Community Baptist Church by design. Your life is not an accident. You are not an accident. Your salvation was not an accident. It's the beauty. It's the beauty of exploring this topic. And add to that this truth here, that if you are alive, which I would take it all of you are here this morning, uh, that you are alive, and if you're alive and you're a Christian, not only is your physical life not an accident, but your spiritual life is not an accident, that Christ died specifically for you. Not in a general sense, but in a specific sense. The gospel message is a message, and catch this, I thought this was a good truth, that the Christian message, the message of the gospel, is not a message of a general sacrifice for sins, but a specific sacrifice for specific sins of specific individuals, and that's the beauty of the understanding of the doctrine of election. It's a beautiful thing. So there's that. There's Psalm 139. That's where we were. This morning, we're going to go a little deeper. We're going to examine the level of not only have we been created, but the fact that we've been created and gendered. We're going to talk about gender this morning. We're going to go from a general sense of Psalm 139 saying you were created to looking at the specifics of understanding that we've been created as both male and female. I want to explore this topic. And there's probably no greater conversation that we could have in this cultural moment that we're in than around this subject of gender. Probably no greater conversation we could have. What is gender? What does the Bible say about gender? You know, very quickly, it, just take a quick, simple walk through the hallway of Regents High School. And very quickly, you'll see, you'll be confronted with this, the subjects of gender and gender identity and gender fluidity. We see it. And I would say it's my heart and our leadership's heart that instead of opting for the response of this is sickening, this is foolish, this is ungodly, our heart is that we would learn to settle for a much deeper response. We need a better response than that. The previous response is easy. It's easy to look at the whole conversation of gender and say that's disgusting. 
All you wretched people. That is disgusting. That is so silly. It's much harder to seek and understand the issue and confront it in an informed manner. That's the heart this morning. It's not enough for us at PCBC to put our heads in the sand and commiserate and then long for the wicked to be judged. That's not enough. That's not good enough. And the world is hungry for an answer. The the world is longing and seeking for answers and hope. And the truth is this, that the gospel of Jesus is the balm for the wound. Amen? That what the world needs, especially around this subject of gender, most essential to our identity, is the balm, the solving agent of the gospel of Jesus. So of all the times that the church must rise up to the occasion, it is a time like this. That as the culture rages and gets dark, as we see confusion, we stand as a city on a hill. That's our mission. For the sake of our Christian witness, for the sake of our children, we need an apologetic that works and is able to make sense of our reality. We need a theology that works, that when you leave this little safe space, this sanctuary, and you're sitting in a cafe, or you're at a gas station, or you're in Shaw's, or you're at school where you work, we need a theology that works. Not just one that says, stay away from me, but one that learns to wade through this topic. Especially for those of us who have young children. Not that I, wanna, I don't want to isolate any of the older folks like Eric just steps in a puddle and dissolves like Alka-Seltzer. But especially those with younger children. I think Kirsten and I are in that. I think Clevin says, Julie, Josh and Julie, that with younger children, we're going to have to learn to how to articulate this subject of gender to them. We're going to have to cast for them the biblical vision of it for our children's sake. It's an important subject And so opposed to to railing against culture for a half an hour, I thought it would be prudent if we just spent a few minutes and oriented ourselves to the biblical sense and understanding of gender. Does that sound good? I think where a lot of churches would opt to, let's just rail against culture, talk about how good we are, talk about how horrible the pagans are. Let's just throw that garbage out and let's just say, what does the Bible say? And how can I walk through this? Sound good? That's that's what we're going to do. So if you would, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and so, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm in the middle of, uh, I actually just completed taking some grad school classes, and one of my biggest problems in, in school and in writing papers, I always forget to cite my sources. Uh, and so in the spirit of that, what I'm about to say, I've stole from Eric. But I didn't steal, I borrowed it. So if I get in trouble, it's him. It's all him. <clears throat> it's all on you. <laughs> all right, so turn with me. Genesis chapter 1. And before we get to the subject of gender, I thought it would be good if we walk through the creation account in Genesis, kind of get a backdrop to, to this idea of gender, and then we'll go into that subject. So we have to build, we have to do some theological building before we have this, ta- this discussion. So Genesis chapter 1, and my shoe's untied, so I'm just going to take my shoes off or I'm going to fall down. Is that okay? How's that for a tradition? Shoes off. <clears throat> so Genesis chapter 1. We read this, and this, is, this will be common for a lot of us. I want to read one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 27. It says this, In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and, good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So I want to stop here real quick, just for time's sake. Let's just shift over. So we see three days. It's creating, it's following the same pattern. Jump with me to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's a very common chapter, right? It's a very common uh, chapter of the Bible that we go through. And, and a couple things come out of Genesis chapter 1. There's a, a bit of a poetic rhythm to the text, right? As you, as you read it, you'll read, And God said, And God said, And God said. You'll read, There was evening, there was morning, it was good. It's got a, it's got a poetic rhythm happening. And and the second thought out of Genesis 1 is this, that regardless of whether or not creation happened in six literal days, at the base, we discover a God who creates, are you ready? Who creates both the form and the function. I'm channeling my inner Eric here. We We encounter a God in the rhythm, we find a God who creates the form and the function. You're like, what do you mean by that? Verses 1 through 10. If you were to look at that, what you see is nothing but the creation of the forms, right? We see the creation of land, creation of seas. We see the creation of space. And then verse 11 through 25, creation of the function. God fills all those forms. There's the rhythm. He takes the forms and he fills them with functional elements. The dry lands of verse 10 he fills with functional elements in verse 11 and 12. The, the seas of verse 10 are filled with functional elements in verse 20. There's a poetic rhythm. And then verse 26. 
As it's going about, and God said, there was evening and morning, and it was good. That whole rhythm, verse 26, interrupting the rhythm, we read, then. Then God said. It's this idea of culmination. It denotes an expectation, a culmination, that something great and different is about to happen. Chapters, verses 1 through 25, rhythm, the same thing happening over and over again. Creation, creation, create the form, give it function, create the form, give it function. Verse 26, then, then, something special is about to happen. And here's what we read. Let us make man in our own image. What a thought. What a thought that is. Let us. If we had time, we could run into this idea that right at the outset of Scripture, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. We see the Father. We see the Spirit. According to Colossians, we see the Son inside of Genesis. It says, let us make. You should create to sculpt. The psalm that I read this morning to start the service, uh, Psalm 95, verse 5, I think it uses this word make so well. It says this, the sea is his, for he made it for his hands formed the dry land. Love that. Then God said, let us make man. Let us form man. Let us craft man. Verses 1 through 25, kind of the same. Verse 26, something unique and special is about to happen. God says, let us make, let us craft, let us form man in our image. This is where the text takes a very interesting turn. It expresses this expectation hinted at by the word then in standing in stark contrast to all the other elements created in verses 1 through 25. Here's an interesting thought. I'm excited to talk to Eric about this one. This is an interesting thought. Standing in contrast to all the other elements created, man, and to be sure, ladies, the word means humanity, means man and women. Here it is. It's created according to a pre-existing pattern. It's interesting about verse 26. Everything else is made according to a plan, to be sure, but is made as something totally new. Mountains, that's a new idea. Sea creatures, that's a new idea. Plants, that's a new idea. Mankind, mankind is created according to something old, something already in existence, something that predates the creation, God himself. Man is molded and formed in the image of God. Mankind is created in the image of God himself as the visible expression of the preexistent and excellent God Almighty. Isn't that a cool thought? Right there in verse 26. Mankind is created as something completely unique and an elevated element of creation. And, And don't, we can't miss this. Verse 26 is huge. There's no other object in the entirety of creation that has been demarcated as being created in the image of God, implying that human life is special, it is elevated, it is a beautiful thing. This is the base of the pro-life ethic that we have as Christians. And and I'm going to go out on a limb and say something here. I, I love pets. Pets are great. But let me, 
Let me tell you this. I read this week that Americans alone, are you ready for this? Americans alone spent $69 billion, it's billion with a B, in 2017 on pets. $69 billion. Now, what I'm, I'm not suggesting it's wrong to have pets. I'm saying that according to Genesis 1, 26, 27, it is egregious to contribute to a culture and system where pets live better lives than humans. It's a shame that we have to hang a Compassion International poster on the back of our church wall. It's a shame that, Barb, you have to fight for funds for Feed My Starving Children to have food to eat, and our pet coes are just oozing with food. The, the pregnancy center in Middlebury had to have people walk around to raise money and our dogs wear sweaters. Think about that for a minute. It's crazy. Humanity is special and beautiful. You see that right in Genesis 1. They're beautiful and they're unique. Implying that black or white, legal or illegal, to be pro-life is to be the champion of life from conception to the deathbed because God created us in his image. And we can't miss it. Right here in the text, the elevated and unique position of man admits the entire created order. So what does this mean, though? Like, okay, that sounds great, but what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God, and what does this have to do with gender? Verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image. It's an interesting word. It means a representative figure. It's actually used of idols in the Old Testament. Rich, I thought that was cool. That the word image, it literally means, it's the word used for idols. It means an image or a bust created to create a visualization of the divine being. What a thought that mankind has been created as a statue of the divine. Isn't that a cool thought? We're like little Grammy statues created in the image of God. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, you've been created in our image and after our likeness, and likeness just simply means resemblance. It means created in step with the character and nature of the one creating and taking it together. It means this, that mankind has been created with the express intention. You ready? Yes, why was I created? Why was I made? Here you go. That mankind has been created with the express intention of displaying the nature and character of God. There it is, right in the Genesis text. Now verse 27. Little, little bit of a poem. Some Bibles will indent it. It just recapitulates the narrative. It's just the first two lines. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. It's as if the author, it's as if Moses didn't want you to miss it. God created man in his image. In his image, God created man. He reiterates the same point. And then he introduces something new. Do you see that? The third line in verse 27? The first, verse of, the first line of 27, so God created man in his image. Second line, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The invisible God expressed, imaged forth in the form of two distinct yet complementary genders. Verse 27. Now, over the next couple weeks, I I do want to explore the idea of masculinity and the idea of femininity. I'm dripping up here. 
I want to explore those ideas, what it means. It means you're a man when you have a beard and wear a bow tie and sweat on stage. That's masculinity. Um, <clears throat> but today, I just want to go for the, the base of that. We're not going to explore masculinity or femininity. That'll be the next couple weeks. But there's three things that come out of the text here that I think is very important for us with the conversation of gender. Number one, that you and I, and this is obvious, that we were created and gendered. You're like, okay, it, duh. Your gender implies and informs the totality of who you are. Explicitly, we were created as male or female. Which gets to something. That the immaterial self, the internal self, is not separated from the material self. Did you catch that? That your immaterial self is not separated from your material self. Your physical, biological body, your biological gender, your material parts is the same as your mental, emotional gender, your immaterial self, and vice versa. And the ancients who wrote, the Moses who wrote this, the ancients, the world of the author of Genesis, Moses, knew nothing of the duality that permeates our modern society, right? We, we want to separate. We want to separate ourselves. We want to have physical realm and spiritual realms, and the Bible doesn't quite know that. The Bible views us as a unit, as a holistic individual, both physical and spiritual. If you don't believe me, we're going to be in heaven in physical bodies. Ever think about that? We are, it's, it's not dualistic. It's one, both physical, both spiritual. So there's that. We're a one creature, both spiritual, physical. We're created male and female, internally, externally. And then number two, that we were created and gendered differently. You see that here in the text? This male and female, he created them. Created as two different, yet compatible genders. This, this can't be missed. Contrary to the cultural chaos surrounding gender, we know that according to 1 Corinthians 14, that God is not a God of confusion and that he built into his system almost in poetic fashion. You've got to catch this. Male and female, almost in a, in a poetic rhythm, he created two distinct yet corresponding genders. It's fascinating. Obviously, on the surface, to be male is not to be female, and to be female is not to be male, and that'll be the topic over the next two weeks. But think of it this way, that we are corresponding. We know both genders were, accorded, were created according to the same purpose. That's verses 26 and 28. We, we read it, let them have dominion. God said, be fruitful. Built into that is this idea that correspondence is seen physically and biologically. It's cool. The genders, God built us different yet corresponding. We see this, we not only fit together physically and sexually, we know that. We're all adults here in the room. We know that. Not only do we fit together physically, sexually, but the correspondence of sexuality leads to biological life. We see that in verse 28. And I have to think that this physical and biologic correspondence expressed the cooperative nature of the genders. Right at the outset, everything I just said, there's some foundational stuff, but here's the very simple truth. Right at the outset, the genders weren't competing. They were different, yet were able to correspond. Over to, over, able to, over, to interrelate. Not one over the other. Not patriarchy. All right? Not, not one that said, this is the man's world and all women need to come in line. That's not what we see in Genesis chapter 1. 
Nor was it feminism that says the future's pink. There would be no future if it was only pink. Come on. Both are wrong, and this pendulum swinging between one or the other, the entire concept of correspondence is undone. And we see in Genesis 1 that the genders were created to interrelate in such a way that the flourishing of the entire created order would occur. And this difference, and this difference ought to be celebrated. When we read Genesis 1.27, we see even male created, male and female, crafted, designed with a specific gender that should be celebrated. Culture tends to shame one gender in supporting the other, right? We see that. Let's shame the one, we'll celebrate the other. We'll celebrate one, we'll shame that one. And this swinging between patriarchy and feminism has just had us to this cultural moment. That's just so bleak. The the biblical model of gender leads to one celebrating the other gender while respecting and valuing the other and realizing that gender is a glorious gift to be thankful for. Okay, now number three. Celebrated, we were created and gendered with purpose to display the invisible God together. You see that right here. While every human life is created in the image of God, it is an incomplete image, meaning this, that not one person is the express, full imaging force, forth of God. The genders are designed in such a way that when they come together, they complete the image. That's an interesting thought. It's interesting to notice that God used the model of two genders in order to best express himself. He didn't create in his image one asexual creation. He could have but he didn't. It's as if one gender image forth specific attributes where another image forth something different. And these corresponding genders are the most beautiful expression of the invisible God. Here's an interesting thought here. This makes sense of the cultural push to blur the lines of gender and rid themselves of it altogether. Why do I say that? We know Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God has made himself known in the created order on purpose, right? Romans 1. God's fingerprints are on every element of it. And the evil one has assaulted this, whether through the horrors of abortion, through the idea of gender fluidity, through naturalism, through racism, has done nothing but attacked the image of God. As if if God could be erased from the created over, it would be in vain. And that's what's fundamentally wrong with our cultural understanding of gender fluidity is it assaults the image of God. There that is. There it is. I think you see that in the text. There's some truth. But I don't want to leave us just hanging there. There, I think, is a little overview of biblical. I don't think I did an exhaustive understanding of gender. But I want to leave us with a couple practical considerations now. So here we, it is hot, Vicki. Now as we have this little theological understanding from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. All right, we see created differently, all that stuff. How do we respond? Here's what I think. Number one. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul exhorts the church to put on compassionate hearts. I think the Christian response to the issue of gender has been, by and large, I'm not saying everybody, but by and large, awful. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. As we take a biblical understanding of gender and we walk out these doors and we walk into virgins, 
Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. I love this little section of verses here. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then, his disciple, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into the harvest. Matthew 9 tells us this. If we are going to maintain a truly Christian ethic, You ready for this? If we are going to maintain a truly Christian ethic, we must hold firm to the truth of Genesis 1 that says we've been created male and female while viewing individuals through the lens of gospel compassion. That's a Christian ethic. We are to view them as helpless and harassed, as prisoners of war, as redeemable and valuable. As much as we say, I disagree with the fact that you believe that your gender is fluid, I love you, Jesus loves you, here's the gospel, I will sit with you. You are valuable. That's a Christian ethic. If you're a human being and you're alive, regardless of your struggle with gender, regardless if you're a man who calls himself a woman or a woman who calls herself a man, your life is valuable. We have compassion on them. We view them as redeemable and as those who cannot help themselves. I love that in this text. Where Jesus views the crowd with compassion because he sees they're harassed and helpless. Shame on us that the church tends to be the ones who harass the helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then this last thought, and I'll end here. I went way over. I'm so sorry. It's hard to split this up. <laughs> So we have compassionate hearts. We maintain a truly Christian ethic. Number two, I love the proverbial thought of of Solomon. As you read Proverbs over and over again, this phrase comes up, get wisdom, get insight. Read Proverbs, you see it all the time. Get wisdom, get insight. Here's the thought. We must seek to listen and understand those struggling with issues of gender and sexual identity. You've probably heard Eric say this before. You can believe something and then you meet somebody. Ever hear Eric say that? You can have your doctrine all ironed out and your position all ironed out, and then you've got to sit across from somebody and articulate it to them. I, my, my cousin Amanda, Kirsten knows her or him, we're trying to figure out even how you wade into that, whereas transition from Amanda to Jonathan, and let me tell you, that's hard. How do you articulate that? How do you live with one another? But the truth is this, that the truths of Psalm 139 apply to the Christian and to those struggling with gender identity. It means this, that we sit and listen, we build relationship, we put our political tendencies aside, and we see the person beneath the issue. That's a Christian ethic. Now one more passage and then I'll shut up. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Mark chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. I don't want to, this is a very cliche passage, but I think there's some good truth in here. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. I love the Mark and account of this text. It's in the other synoptic gospels as well, but Mark includes this one little phrase that I find so beautiful. Not only does he say in verse 15 that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and they're reclining at the table with Jesus and his disciples, Mark is the only one that adds this, for there were many who followed him. I love that thought. Many types of people following Jesus, trying to understand Jesus, trying to get close to Jesus, and a couple observations for that. Number one, if it was possible for sinners to come and sit with Jesus then, then I assume it's possible now. What, we have gotten, what have we gotten wrong about the Christian message? We must view ourselves as physician assistants in this world, but not the physician. He's the physician. We're, we're physician assistants. We've got some medical training. And lastly, eat with sinners. It's good, i.e. it's biblical, to spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But when was the last time we shared a meal in our homes or at a restaurant with an individual struggling with gender identity. There's a thought. So there it is. There's a little conversation on gender. I don't think I explained it fully. We rooted in a biblical truth that we've been created in the image of God as both male and female, and we're also bound to an ethic of compassion. There it is. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we have been created that we've been created and gendered differently, yet able to correspond, able to be your imaging forth in this dark and dying world. Uh, We love you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.